Welcome to episode number eight of the Thermal Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of the Thermal, gliding across the English Channel in 1958 and claiming the British distance record. We hear pilot Andy Goff's personal account of this historic flight. Some of you may have seen her wonderful paintings of gliders on the web. Pilot with a paintbrush is the social media name of a young pilot from Scotland who is able to put her love of gliding to canvas. She talks to us about why she finds gliding so inspirational. And how do you keep your glider, trailers, ventilation fans going during the long cloudy winter? And mini wind turbine, of course. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Dunstable Downs and the London Gliding Club. That and a whole lot more on episode number eight of The Thermal. Many glider pilots think they're aerial artists when it comes to chasing thermals, but Amy Jo Randalls is the real deal, both a glider pilot and an artist. She produces wonderful aerial scenes that truly capture the essence of soaring. I've reached Amy Jo Randalls, also known as Pilot with a Paintbrush, in Glasgow, Scotland. Hello, Amy Jo, and, and welcome to The Thermal. Hi there. So listen, I love your paintings. Uh, I imagine you have two passions, painting and gliding. Are, there, are the passions equal for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I'd say that both painting and aviation have been there as long as I can remember um, in about equal amounts. And I've, I'm probably as equally obsessive with both of them, to be honest. And what is it about painting gliders that uh, you find particularly appealing? I think it's mostly because that is the biggest type of flying I do. Um, you know, I've been gliding for seven and a bit years now. Um, mm -hmm. And when you do something like that, it's just so emotive. You know, when you're in the air, there's something weirdly emotional about it. And there's something very inspiring about being in the air. When I come down from a flight, I, I you know, you want to tell people about it. But for me, that's kind of not enough. I want to be able to express it in a way that I can't do with just words are writing and for me that really comes when I start painting them and I can start putting down what I, I saw and what I felt and I can really tell a story with my art and with a painting that I just can't quite do in just a straight conversation or with writing. Now t tell me about how you actually translate that into art. What You have an image, how do you turn that, that image into a painting? So if I'm just doing something for myself, I'm just doodling around, often I'll just start with a photograph I took. Um, the vast majority of paintings I'll do are inspired by flights I took or by photographs I took. So I'll generally start by just scrolling through the photos I took on that day. Um, I've had a particularly inspiring flight, choosing one of them, and then either just straight up copying the photograph or just painting the scenery itself. Um, and once I've, I've started drawing it in, it's just a case of, painting it as I see it or if I'm trying to make something up it's just a case of pulling together as many photos as I can and as many references as I can to then build up what is in my head to try and describe what I saw on on the page or on the canvas really that's uh I I, I can't I have no I don't have an artistic bone in my body so just that process I find fascinating yeah oh I it's funny, it comes really naturally to me. I mean, I say that, it's, it's often a real struggle, but often just putting the pen or the pencil or the paintbrush onto the page of the canvas, it's not a struggle at all. In fact, it's usually often a struggle to not do that. So it's, it's funny, I often have more of a fight not 
drawing or painting than I do actually drawing or painting. So it, it kind of just comes very naturally when you start doing it. I, you know, I kind of go into another world, really, and you just live inside the world that you've created on the, the page until it's done. Now, there's one painting that I've seen of yours that I really, really like. It's it's this image of an Arcus in flight, and it's almost as if you're at the end of the wingtip painting from that perspective. What's the story behind that shot or that painting? So that was a painting that I created. It was a gift for the owner of that particular airfield in North Wales um, and of the Arcus itself um, by a pilot that had been loaned that Arcus to fly around in. Um, And he basically wanted to give this as a gift to the owner of the airfield in the glider itself. Um, His brief wasn't that detailed. He just told me to get a nice big canvas and he wanted a painting of the Arcus and of the airfield. And that's really the only briefing I had. Um, So I just took it from there and I sketched out a bunch of ideas. And I really liked the idea of just sitting off the wingtip. There's something about the wings of an Arcus, shemp wings in particular. I don't know why, I just love them. Oh, they're beautiful, (laughs) beautiful. Oh, they're just gorgeous. And I really wanted to capture that. Um, I think, you know, I'd seen a lot of gliding videos where people had had these cameras that are sort of off the end of the wingtip, and I kind of wanted to capture that. Um, And I felt with the big canvas as well, it would really help to give the impression of just how enormous the wings are, but also just how enormous that landscape is. Um, And then I would have the airfield somewhere below it. I really struggled with that painting. I can't tell you how many nights I was up till like (laughs) four o'clock in the morning painting it, um, trying to just get that um the the colors right but mainly with the actual drawing of the glider itself because there's not many photographs of gliders in flight like that so i mostly had to make it up so that was a real proper struggle um to come to that point but i i think it's still one of my personal favorites as well well, i've ever done (laughs) i think it's fabulous it's it's a beautiful painting especially the perspective that that's what attracted me to it so yeah so some of your paintings or commissions you just mentioned that if there's a glider pilot somewhere in the world because you say that you you mostly paint from images uh do you take commissions from anybody yeah pretty much um obviously when it becomes international it becomes a bit of a problem with postage so i generally try and keep it in the uk postage can be seriously expensive especially going across the atlantic so well i I have to suggest that any commissions you get the the receiving person your customer would be paying for that yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, well, that's the main barrier between um, getting it to anywhere in the world is the cost of the postage. But, of yeah, I'll, I'll take commissions from anyone that's willing to supply me with the correct photographs and pay me what I ask, basically. Absolutely, and I think it'd be worth every penny because I, th- I think they're they're beautiful. And hopefully you get some commissions uh, via this podcast. So where can people go? What's the best place for people to go to to look at uh, your paintings online? So the easiest place will be my Facebook page, um, which is just Pilot with a Paintbrush. Um, I also run an Instagram account with the same handle, just Pilot with a Paintbrush with underscores between the words. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a lot more active on the Facebook page um, than I am on Instagram at the moment. Um, But due to the fact I'm in full-time education and juggling a part-time job, I don't post as often as I'd like to. But that's definitely the easiest place if people want to get in contact with me, ask me questions or send me suggestions as to stuff they'd like to see me do in the future if they don't want a commission themselves. Right, right, obviously. Um, 
I will put some of your images up on the Facebook page for the Thermal Podcast so other uh, pilots who might want to have their aircraft painted can get in touch with you. Uh, like I said, I particularly love the one of the Arcus. Talk to me a little bit about your own personal flying and gliding. How did you get started and, and what kind of gliders are you flying? So I started flying when I was 15 years old. Um, I've always, always been in love with aeroplanes. You know, I think it stems back to when I was about, uh, you know, two or three years old and my dad would take me to the airport and we'd just sit at the end of the runway and, you know, I still love doing that. Um, but I started flying when I was 15. I was really desperate to start learning to fly, but I just couldn't afford it. Um, the, the financial barriers were too great. But after doing some research, I found this little gliding club on my, literally on my doorstep. It was 10 minutes from my house, um, Angus Gliding Club, which sadly now is gone. Um, but I started learning to fly there in this big old red Boshin that I just thought was the best thing in the world. Um, and I just fell so totally in love with it. You know, it came at a time in my life where my family was going through a major crisis and I didn't really know what to do with myself. And when I started gliding rather than powered flying, there's something about the freedom and the quiet of it that was just an escape like I'd never had. Um, and after that, it, I just, tried to do it as much as I possibly could you know became sort of a member of junior gliding and I went to as many junior gliding events as I possibly could um, when Angus Gliding Club eventually folded in 2014 I ended up moving to Portmoke which is in my opinion one of the best gliding clubs anywhere it's just the, the site's absolutely fantastic um, and from there I just tried doing as many competitions as I could afford to do um, I flew as many places as I could manage to fly, um, a lot through junior gliding and their winter series events, which have been fantastic. Um, and last year, I was lucky enough to be able to do six months in New Zealand with Canterbury Gliding Club, where I was an instructor, a uh, living instructor with my partner um, for six months, and we got to see some seriously awesome flying then. Wow, fabulous. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm now a member of a Boeing Gliding Club. Uh, since coming back from New Zealand, I'm not getting as much flying at the moment as I would like to, but I think that's just the Scottish winter for you. <laughs> so what what's next on the, the gliding and painting list for you? On the gliding side, I think I just want to have some fun at a Boyne and really get my teeth into wave flying and really get my teeth into cross-country wave flying. Um, with regard to painting... I, you know, I paint commissions that people ask me to, um, and I want to go flying again because it gives me that inspiration. Because at the moment, I don't seem to be doing a lot of painting just because I'm not doing a lot of flying. But I really want to get up, up again to a boy and get in the air again for it. I try not to take the painting side too seriously. You know, I don't think I want it to be a career or be my life. But you know, I I want it to be there for as long as I can make it be there for. It might be a nice way to pay for some of those expensive aerotos. That's basically what it's for, <laughs> and it's basically how uh, you know how I think I got started doing these commissions was, uh, you know, someone asked me if I could do a painting, um, and I said, oh, okay, sure, and they said, oh, well, I'll give you twenty quid for it, and then I thought, oh, okay, people are willing to pay, all right. Add a zero on that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that's pretty much what happened, and that's you know a lot of the money that goes into my commissions that I earn from them pretty much goes straight into my flying account at whatever gliding club I'm happening to be a member of at the time. So anyone that buys a commission can be definitely assured their money's just going to go straight back into gliding. Wonderful. 
Amy Joe, it's been fabulous speaking with you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing some of your your work online again. And maybe maybe I'll wind up uh, buying a, a painting from you, and I'll send you a picture of one of my gliders. Oh yeah, maybe one day that would be fantastic. <laughs> Take care. Lovely speaking with you. Oh yeah, you too. Amy Joe Randalls, aka Pilot with a Paintbrush, spoke to me from Glasgow, Scotland. Check out her work on Facebook. Just search for Pilot with a Paintbrush. I've also put some of her work on the Thermals Facebook page. Twenty twenty marks the twenty fifth anniversary of the first international vintage sailplane meet at Harris Hill in Elmira, New York. The dates are July fourth to eleventh, twenty twenty. The National Soaring Museum is co-hosting the event along with the Harris Hill Gliding Club. It's a fabulous rally and well worth the effort to get there. I'll be there with my Canadian registered LK-10A. Hope to see you there. In 1958, the British Royal Air Force Gliding Contest was held at RAF Base South Cerny near Cirencester in Gloucestershire from the 17th to the 26th of May. Entries were divided into two classes, cantilever and strutted. For you younger pilots, look that up. During the contest, there was one remarkable flight that stood out from the rest. RAF Sergeant Andy Goff flew his Skylark 3 from South Cerny to Dover, across the English Channel to France, then northeast over most of Belgium before finally landing in southern Holland. In the August 1958 edition of Sailplane and Gliding, Andy wrote about his flight. The title of his article is From the Cotswolds to Holland. This is Andy's first-hand account of the flight. It's read by Ben Edwards. The championships gave me the chance I have awaited the necessary leisure and freedom from service duties, the best of retrieving crews, the right machine, the right weather profit, and the weather, a helpful and understanding wife, and a good slice of luck, enabled me to achieve my ambition to hold the British record. The 20th of May was the first contest day of the championships. The task, a goal race to Hawkinge, which gave me 133 miles of flying practice, I was fortunate to win this event, but owing to a breakdown of the retrieving crew, I did not get back to base and bed until 4am, so I hoped that the next event would be a short goal race. The 21st May was the second contest day. The task, a free distance in an easterly direction. So much for my hope for short goal race. Conditions were reasonable, and our Met profit gave me hope. Plans were hurriedly made on the spot. I dispatched my retrieving crew to the Dover area. Flight Sergeant Charles Gould jumped to it with his chipmunk aircraft and towed me up at 11.25 hours approx. I placed my bar of chocolate with an easy reach and released a sailplane at 2,000 feet in weak lift. Looking downwind, I could see better conditions towards Swindon. I reached cloud base at 3,000 feet and then set course to catch the better conditions, which seemed good and by flying at about 80 knots between thermals, I reached the Dover area in approximately 2 hours 10 minutes. I estimated that the maximum height I could gain would be in the region of 6,000 feet, so I then went back inland and spent an hour or so in trying to better my height. I ate half of my bar of chocolate and returned to Dover with about 4,000 feet 
under a cloud, giving me about three metres per second climb rate. Reaching 6,000 feet, again I was at zero sink rate, and about four to five miles out to sea, it was then I decided to cross to Calais. About halfway across the channel, I encountered an area of about three metres sink and went down to about 3,500 feet. By checking on the waves, I noticed that my course to Calais was now crosswind, so I headed for southwest of Dunkirk. On altering course for southwest of Dunkirk, I flew under a piece of cumulus with negative sink conditions, and this was a good move, as I soon had Dunkirk beneath me at about 2,000 feet. Approximately five miles inland, I picked up some weak lift until I reached a position ten to twelve miles inland, when I got my first real firm oil of one metre. Although conditions were not really good, I decided to press on. I carried on in weak firmals and reached Ghent before getting firmals strong enough to take me over two thousand feet. I recognised Ghent, having been stationed there during the war years, and I was familiar with the area. I followed the autobahn to Brussels, and on arrival I had a splendid view of the Otomium in the exhibition, which made a striking spectacle when viewed from the air. I was sorely tempted to land in a huge car park space alongside the exhibition and take the opportunity to exhibit a British sailplane, but I knew that I had to go on if I were to beat the British distance record. I then consumed the last of my bar of chocolate and made plans to proceed to Gellenkirchen Airfield in Germany, as I knew exactly where it was. I was now working the thermals to cloud base, but they were becoming fewer and farther apart. I flew over the river mast to Big Airfield in Holland and saw a Govia sailplane sitting on the ground. I wondered why the sailplane was not being flown, and I soon discovered the reason when several parachutists began to drop on the airfield. Obviously this was no place for me, so I reluctantly gave up my thermal, as I knew there could not be many more to be had at this late hour, approximately 7pm. However, I had one more weak thermal, and at approximately 2,500 feet, I thought I would have enough height to reach Geilenkirchen, as I still had a tailwind of about 10 knots. On approaching Heerlen in Holland at 2,000 feet, I noticed between me and Geilenkirchen a beautiful rainbow, with all that goes with it. So down came the rain, and down I went. Finally, landing on the east side of Heerlen, the first people to meet me were two Dutch customs officers who informed me that I was on the Dutch-German border. They asked me where I'd come from, and when I told them I came from England, they said that was obvious, but from which part of Germany had I flown that day? Whilst trying to convince the customs officers that I'd flown from England that day, three Dutch policemen arrived on the scene. Again, I had to go through the hoop, but after showing my map with a course marked on it, all was well, and everyone was satisfied and delighted. I cannot speak too highly of the kindness and helpfulness of the Dutch officials. They also helped me to phone RAF Galenkirchen, who sent a jeep and trailer for the retrieve. Whilst waiting the arrival of the jeep and trailer, I was showered with hospitality. Several fried eggs and long sausages with a choice of tea or coffee soon restored me to my normal state. I was then ushered into a large farmhouse which was packed with locals, all very kindly insisting on drinking to my health, before being put under the table and... Killed with kindness, the jeep and trailer came to my rescue. I'm very grateful to Flight Lieutenant Coatsworth, the CFI of RAF Geilenkirchen, who turned out with a jeep and trailer at such short notice. I was very glad to see him as he is an ex-glider pupil of mine. Thus ended my flight of 348 miles in 7 hours 55 minutes. On arrival back at South Cerny, I was informed that I had been observed at Hawkinge by no less than six official observers... Should there be a next time, I should like to make more detailed plans before the flight 
and record more technical details for the benefit of those attempting similar flights. That was Andy Goff's story from the August 1958 edition of Sailplane and Gliding, as read by Ben Edwards. With its remarkable 7-hour and 55-minute flight of 348 miles, 560 kilometers, Sergeant Andy Goff beat both the United Kingdom local distance record of 315 miles and the British national record of 318 miles. He also won the RAF championships for the second time. Andy Goff's son, also called Andy, lives in Ontario, where he's an active member of the Sosa Gliding Club, which is where I got to know him. I've reached Andy at his winter home in Claremont, Florida. Andy, this was truly a remarkable flight. What's the story behind your father's decision to jump the channel? He was only 34 years old. So, and especially those days, uh, you know, there was still, the safety thing wasn't a big big part of it. I mean, this was adventure. Right. And, um, well, he knew he had 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 the, the best airplane that you could get at that time, which was the, the, the Skylark 3. Um, I think it was an F model, I'm not sure, but, uh, or, or maybe a B. I, I really, it doesn't really matter. But, I mean, you know, he had a 30-something to one glide angle, 31, 32, maybe 33, and he has to go 40 kilometers across the channel. So at 6,000 feet, he should be able to make it. Should be <laughs> and, able to make it. <laughs> and, you know, the, pre- previous attempts, many previous, most of them ended up on the beach. He was fortunate enough to get inland and then get into to, uh, uh, stronger lift and that, that took him on the rest of the flight. I mean, it was never your dad's intention to cross the channel. He just decided to go for it, if I understand it correctly. Well, I think if you, if you go back to the, to, the, to, to the article that was written there, he said that, that um, he saw that this was his opportunity. Yeah, he, he did intend to go across the channel, whether he was going to be able to make it or not. I mean, the, the previous day, they, they'd had a goal race to Hawkins, which is, which is close to Dover. It's just, just west of Dover. And so the next day, uh, they had a free distance. So going to Hawkins wasn't going to make it. So he needed to go across the channel. And I don't think that's what he wanted to do. He, he saw that was the opportunity. Uh, the, the, the weather was right. And um, they'd been given free reign to go and do it. So, yeah, I think he, he, he did mean to go across the channel. And your dad wound up actually winning that contest as well. Well, he was very lucky that they had some rough, rough days afterwards and uh, gave him time to get him back. I mean, I think, I think it was, took him two or three days to, ta- to, to, to bring him back. And uh, they, they, they used a, uh, an Air Force cargo aircraft to, to ship him back. Oh, really? They yes. put the glider in a transport <laughs> and took it back to the UK? Yeah. Nice to have the RAF as a retrieve crew. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your dad's uh, gliding career in the RAF. How did that start? Well, he joined he joined the um, the Air Force at seventeen as a dispatch rider, and at the end of the at the end of the war, he was in you know either in Belgium or in Germany and had the opportunity to stay on. And um, there was a, a service uh, gliding operation at a place called Minderheide. And uh, he learned to fly there with the traditional um, ground slides, you know, the primary gliders, solo flying, where you, you uh, 
progress your slides till you get a hop and then you get a high hop and uh, then you you, you uh, get your A certificate and then the B certificate was two more flights where you, you demonstrate a left and a right turn. And uh, shortly after, you know, he, he, he uh, became solo and then got to fly winch launches net, he became an instructor. And he obviously had the talent for this, which was recognized. Um, so they posted him to uh, one of the, German, one of the uh, British Air Force uh, of Occupation rest centers at a place called Sharp Oldendorf. He became the, the, the chief flying instructor there. Um, and this was kind of like a, a gliding par- paradise. At the end of the war, the German gliders were all confiscated, and they used to, they started destroying them. And uh, there were a, a group of, of uh, savvy glider pilots who had a little bit of say in this got it, got together and, and halted this, and had the the, uh, the airplanes shipped to the. These uh, three uh, BAFO rest centers, you know, BAFO being British Air Forces of Occupation. Right. They had countless gliders, just had hangars full of them. And, and your dad is still a novice pilot at this point, right? Well, he was sent there as the CFI um, because they did have some problems in that they were breaking the airplanes more often than, than, than bringing them back. Right. And, of course, all they have to do is just push it to the back of the hangar and we'll get another one out. So when he went there, his, his objective was to um, <clears throat> bring in some standards and, uh, and sort of halt, halt the... the uh, just destruction the, the, of the glider? Just, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was kind of unusual. I mean, he was just a corporal. And your your father did so well, if I understand it, he stayed with the RAF uh, in, in a gli- as a gliding instructor and, and wound up running a big gliding center called Bister, is that right? That's right. Um, and you know, my father's story is, is the story of the RAF GSA. It's the Royal Air Force Gliding and Soaring Association. You know, the people that backed him in Germany, um, the, 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 the major person there was... Uh, a guy called Christopher Paul. Um, he was a group captain at that time. He recognized that the captured gliders could be used to good good effect. And he was um, he was a leading founder of the RAF Gliding and Soaring Association. But in 52, my father had to come back to the UK and his gliding stopped, basically. He, he did the occasional, the occasional flight at Lasham when he could find the the the, uh, the money to to get a launch but um not too much was happening until sometime i think in about 1953 just by chance he met christopher paul um he said they'd been wondering where he'd gotten to and he uh outlaid uh outlaid his plans for uh, a center for the rf gliding and soaring association would my father head this up and that's basically where the the the, the big thing of uh, building the RFGSA started. Now, your dad spent, if I understand it correctly, the rest of his working life there. And I read a note that said after reaching something like seven thousand hours, your dad stopped logging his flights. Is that right? I, I have uh, some of his logbooks, uh, certainly his last ones, which they, he kept up his power logbooks uh, meticulously. 
I think probably the gliding log books, you know, how many two and three minute flights do you want to right. log, you know, and, uh, now your, your, your dad continued flying throughout his, uh, you know, fifties as well, but I understand your, your father died in a, in a gliding accident in 1982. What, what happened? Yeah. Well, as part from his, his, uh, no contest in cross country flying and his, and his, uh, um, his management and uh, CFI ship of the uh, the centre at Vista. Um, he, used, he was also a, a quite an accomplished aerobatic display pilot, and um, he took a you know the Blanick to to uh, air shows all over all over the country throughout the summer months. Um, and one of his signature moves was um, outside loop. Outside loops in Blahniks are very, very rare. I don't think there's anybody's done one except my father. He had a a uh, malfunction in the controls. Uh, there was a uh, the coroner's uh, report reported that there was a wrench of East European origin with fresh check marks on it and found in the un, under the the controls that, that that the check marks corresponded to the elevators and. Um, the thought is that it was oversped going over the, uh, the the last outside loop, which took the outer panels of the the uh, uh, the Blanik wings off, and um, he didn't survive the 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 ride down. Yeah. Now, now recently, your son Chris, who I also know from the from the gliding club, and like you and your father before you, you all three of you managed to get have managed to get your diamonds all three generations diamond pilots i imagine your father probably would have been pretty pretty proud knowing that uh, his grandson as well is now taken to gliding and and like his like him has his diamonds yes um he would have been pleased and uh impressed um uh, that anything that that you know either his son or his grandson did but he never did meet his grandson so uh that was a bit of a shame. I mean, he'd been dead two years before Chris was born. Right. But um, yeah, um, you know, three diamonds these days is not quite the same as doing three diamonds when he did it. But um, I know Chris managed to do most of his flights in airplanes that were shortly after that area, and um, so that would have been yes, yeah, certainly yes, a sort of uh, he had been very pleased, especially with. Chris's 750k right. uh, triangle rec- record in in a in a Janta. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Andy, thank thank you so much about telling <clears throat> us about your your uh, your father and his flying career and what he did, and uh, about that pretty spectacular flight across the channel. So uh, thanks again. Thank you. Andy Goff spoke to me from Claremont, Florida, where during the long, insufferable Canadian winters, he's a member of the Seminole Lake Gliding Club. Check out the Thermal's Facebook page for a map of Andy Goff Sr.'s remarkable flight across the English Channel. And now a word about our new sponsor, SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on Episode 7. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, 
Use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Again, use the promo code THERMAL in capital letters to get your 14-day free trial. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, most gliders have been safely tucked away for the winter. Many of those gliders hibernate in their trailers and don't come out until spring. A key to successful storage is proper ventilation. When the sun is out, solar panels do the trick, providing enough power to keep the ventilation fans going. But in many places, the sun doesn't pop out for weeks and sometimes months. Rokas Lagudas is a glider pilot from Lithuania and along with his father, has come up with a unique wind turbine solution. Hello, Rokos, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us on the Thermal Podcast. Hi, nice to hear you. So I saw a photograph of your trailer, this this green glider trailer. Uh, talk to me about your trailer, describe it to me, and how it works. Uh, this is a Cobra trailer used for Pegasus 101A. Mm-hmm. which is a great uh, club class glider. The, the owner is my dad, Darius Laugudas. Right. But I have also made more than 2,000 kilometers with this trailer in 2019. Okay. Uh, so we called our trailer one of the um, eco-friendliest glider trailers uh, for a few weeks. Since we changed uh, the front wheel of the trailer with a small wind power plant, so it's got a a, a little wind turbine, and and it also has solar panels. I understand. Yes. Uh, firstly, uh, I think maybe two years ago, my dad uh, managed to organize this solar power system on this trailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, during gliding season, all the electricity produced by sun is uh, used for ventilation system. Also, daily recharging of uh, glider batteries. And um, my dad also has a small refrigerator for cold drinks after the flight. Uh Now, that's a smart idea. I think every glider pilot will like that. Yeah. Uh, however, the most important uh, period for ventilation system to work is winter. And uh, we faced a problem that we have about three months of short and cloudy days here in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And that uh, makes our solar power system inefficient. Uh, thankfully, um, this period is also known as windy. And a great idea of using that wind power came to my dad's mind, mind um, maybe last winter. Okay. And how is it working? Um, so it's uh, just a wind power. Uh, my father accidentally found this small wind power plant on the internet and bought it. Uh, later, he had to organize some extra parts to finish the project. Mm-hmm. And uh, a great plane constructor from our airfield, Potsuni, Rolandas Kalinauskas, uh, he helped us to produce uh, these missing parts. So finally, we just went to our club, 
uh, built the whole mechanism and uh, left <laughs> when we saw that it is successfully working and producing electricity for our ventilation system. Now, would it be possible that this system that you've designed, would it be able to create enough power to, for example, in the summertime, if you had a, a glider with an electric motor in it, would it be able to provide enough uh, charging power to charge those batteries? Mm, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the location mm -hmm. because uh, in our club in Lithuania, maybe it would be not enough wind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that it is not really practical, but um, it would be much easier to simply plug the power cord from the hunger and turn on uh, the charger on winter mode now. Right. But on the other hand, it was really fun to build this wind power plant as well as to see the successful result. And we are really happy that we uh, won't have to buy a new battery for our trailer in spring. So what inspired you to, to do this? Was it being more green or was it just trying to be practical? What inspired you? Um, I think uh, my dad uh, always was eco-friendly uh, glider pilot. Uh, he always had uh, ideas like this. He always wanted to have eco-friendly house, eco-friendly trailer. And uh, I believe that is the main idea of him. Now, are you able to do anything further with this design? Are you going to be able to sell it? Are other people at your gliding club looking at it? Uh, what's the future for it? Uh, we have talked uh, today that uh, a lot of people in our club now are looking at this and we are really interested and uh, some of them told us that uh, we just want to buy and build the uh, same small wind power plants just for fun. <laughs> Right. They, they said that they don't know what we are going, going to do with this electricity, but we just want to do it because it's fun. Now, some of my flying colleagues at my gliding club here in, in Ontario might be interested in doing this for their trailers. Is there somewhere that they can go and see what you've done and how you've built this so that they can copy what you've done? I think uh, that everyone interested in this uh, should contact me uh, via Instagram or Facebook and we will help to and we will provide this uh, solution. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, I will also put up a link uh, in, on the Facebook page for the Thermal Podcast and then people can uh, contact you that way as well. Okay, thank you. Rokas, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rokas Lagudas spoke to me from Konas, Lithuania. The London Gliding Club, also known as Dunstable, is one of the largest and oldest gliding clubs in the United Kingdom. It's open, weather permitting, some 365 days per year. Ed Downham is a record-breaking British pilot and a member of the London Gliding Club. I reached Ed in Tame, England. So, Ed, you're a member of the London Gliding Club. Is that the correct name of it, and where is it located? 
Yes, it is the London Gliding Club. Um, fly, they, we fly from an airfield called uh, Dunstable Downs, uh, again, sort of north-northwest of London, uh, near Luton uh, Airport. Mm-hmm. Um, it started, well, well, there's about 300 members, 250, 300 members. It was started around the 1930s, so quite an old club. Um, in terms of club gliders, we've probably got what, five K21s, K13, Duo Discus, three K23s, a 24, a Pilatus for aerobatics, and a motor glider for various other sorts of tra- training, um, a brace of robins, and a super cup, and a winch. A, br- and, a brace of robins, of course, being the, those are French tow planes, right? That's the French tow, yeah, the robin uh, DR400 and DR300. They're pretty good good tow planes, uh, especially operating out of a grass field. Um, it's like a quite an undulating site. Uh, most people would uh, be when come there are quite surprised. We actually fly from it because it is quite undulating. But we're at the foot of a hill, and which works um, from about southwest round to north. So that's obviously where they put the club there at the beginning because there are a lot of there was a lot of hill soaring. Um, so it's quite nice to do that now. So there's there's uh, still hill soaring there that you take advantage of. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, we get. Um, uh, used to be hang gliders. Now it's uh, sort of parapunts on the on the ridge. Mm-hmm. And we, we all sort of uh, live together, and the ridge extends in bits and pieces down for about uh, thirty kilometres. And in a high performance glider, you can sort of string the bits together and go down the ridge. But uh, uh, a bit more difficult in a training glider. But it's quite a nice environment to learn to fly. There's quite nice views from the airfield, and uh, on a lot of the days uh, you can either soar off the winch winch onto the ridge or uh, the thermals, it's a very good uh, thermal area, so uh, they tend to start quite early on there, being up in the hills. Now, you just mentioned the paragliders. How much of a worry is that when it comes to conflicting you know, paths? Uh, we get on pretty well. Uh, as far as I know, we, they, um, they're, because it's in, the whole club is inside the controlled airspace for Luton Airport, um, they pretty much come under our control, uh, but we have a very good relationship. Hmm. And uh, my experiences flying uh, with uh, paragliders is that um, you know I, I keep a good distance, uh, but I'm especially aware they can turn very tightly, and if they haven't seen you, they can they can turn into you quite fast. So I, I always give them uh, quite a berth, but generally they're pretty good at finding the core of the thermal, and they'll probably outclimb you. So if you join underneath, it shouldn't be a problem. Right, right. Now you mentioned your your uh, tow planes that you have there. Do you winch as well? Yes, yes, we've got, and we've got a winch, and uh, yeah, that, that works pretty well. We use it for, for training, um, and some people use it for going off on uh, cross countries with. So, uh, yes, I mean, it, it can get a bit crowded on the field when you've got air towing and winching and launching and landing going on at the same time, um, but we, we sort of uh, make it work. And what's the, uh, the, the cost for your club, the membership and aerotos? Is it uh, in line with other clubs as well? Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty similar to uh, most of the other London the uh, London clubs. Um, so, uh, like most clubs these days, it's quite flexible. In uh, you, know, you can join with a membership, or you can pay for um, for the soaring up front, or you can pay for it by the minute, or or whatever. Uh, so, there's a lot of flexibility these days. Can uh, visiting pilots from other countries come over to the to the club and have a flight? Oh, of course, yes. Um, 
I, I can't see a problem with that. Uh, obviously, after October the 31st, no one really knows what's going right. on. Um, but I'm, I'm, no, I think uh, visitors from other countries are very welcome, and I, we, we do see quite a few visitors um, transiting through and uh, flying around the UK, yes. Now, you mentioned October 31st in this part of the world. People think Halloween, but for you, you're thinking Brexit. Is there yeah. a, an impact that the on this potential impact on the, the soaring community in the United Kingdom? Um, I don't really know yet, probably, uh, but we don't, don't quite know what it is yet. I mm -hmm. suspect uh, whatever happens, although there are a lot of protests in the country, we will probably stay in IASA um, because quite a few countries who aren't in Europe are in IASA and it, would, it wouldn't make much sense to leave it. That's the European uh, uh, governing body. Uh, effectively, yes. And uh, yeah, so importing, exporting gliders or having them maintained overseas uh, may become more difficult, but we don't really know at the moment. Huh. And finally, what's the, the best thing about your gliding club? Uh, it's very friendly and it sort of covers all the bases. bases. So uh, uh, from people who are early solo, people who want to do aerobatics, people to, who want to uh, fly cross country or go on expeditions, um, people who want to learn how to be instructors, people who like flying vintage gliders, there's a niche for everybody there. Hmm. So uh, I think that makes it, it's quite diverse in that respect. And we have a, a flourishing cadet scheme. Uh, we take on about 15 to 20 uh, young people from the local area every year and uh, they get sort of trained up by, by us. Ed, thank you for talking to me about the, the London Gliding Club. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Ed Downham spoke to me from Tame England. If you want to find out more, go to www.londonglidingclub.co.uk. And now an update on the story of the Mystery Slingsby T3 glider that was found in the rafters at York Surrey, north of Toronto. Garfield Ingram tells me the Gatineau Gliding Club is taking on the project for restoration. Although the origins of the T3 are still unconfirmed, evidence points to it being the one that came from the Gatineau Club originally. And a shout out to Freedom's Wings Canada, a volunteer organization that provides people with disabilities the opportunity to fly. Inspiration glider flights are available to individuals with disabilities and are free once a year. And for those who want to go further and pursue a glider pilot's license, there are hand-controlled gliders available for training, but the usual fees apply. The Freedom's Wings program is a wonderful way to reach out to the local community and give the gift of flight. Maybe this is something your gliding club should consider. If you want to know more, go to freedomswings.ca. That's freedomswings, all one word, dot ca. That's it for episode number eight of the Thermal Podcast. I will be back again early February with another show that will include an interview with the author of the highly successful training manual, The Soaring Machine. Thanks for all of the positive feedback and interview suggestions. 
I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.